Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Okay, so John chapter 8. Let's, uh, let's get towards something a little more helpful and spiritual. Praise God. So we, we have been in a series that we're calling Iconic. We are taking a journey through the gospel of John, and we're looking at the life of Jesus. We're discovering who Jesus is, what was he about, what was his primary message, and we're discovering it through his life through his teachings, through the actions he took to declare to the world that I've come to rescue you. You're in need of saving and God has sent a savior. I am the savior. That's the message that Jesus is declaring throughout the gospel of John. He's saying to the world, I have come as an answer to sin and death and Satan and hell and all the brokenness in the world. I am God's answer. That's the message that Christ is saying over and over again through the book of John, through the gospel of John. And today we're going to be looking at John chapter 8. And if you're taking notes, um, I want you to catch something because this is so important. It's so powerful. In John chapter 8, it's the story of a woman who is caught in adultery. It's one of the most exposing shameful moments that is recorded in the New Testament. So it's one of those moments that even as you read it, if you could, in your mind's eye, put yourself into the situation, you can just feel the weight, the tenderness, the, the shame, the exposure of this moment. And for some of you, if, if you're reading a physical Bible, um, you may see some brackets or some notes around uh, John 8, verse 1 to 11. And it may say something like this, this story is not found in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. Now, it's included in all major translations of the Bible because um, this story was written down and circulated among early Christians. It was found in some of the earliest documents, but not the earliest ones. Um, and at the end of the day, as you read this story, it is so in alignment with the heart of Christ. It's so similar to how he treats others in a similar situation that those who were, who were praying and asking for the Spirit's guidance on what to include, even John, as he's writing the gospel, as he's thinking about what to include, man, this story, this story is massively important. And it was, it was agreed upon and included by all of the early people and scholars and church leaders who were saying, man, what? what do we want to share when we share the story of Jesus? And so I just want to make a note of that. If you see that in your Bible, there's more to be said about that. But um, this is 100% God's inspired word. And this story really happened. And at the end of this story, if you're asking me, what is this thing all about? I'm going to read it for us in just a second. But what is this story all about? It's a story about how Jesus deals with us in our moments of greatest shame. It's a story of how God treats us, how God feels about us when we've been caught, when we've been exposed, 
when that thing that we hoped nobody would ever find out about us has now been publicly displayed, has been discovered by family members or friends, and maybe everyone is turning their back on you, pointing a finger at you, shaming you in those moments, and maybe you deserved it. Because what you did or what we've all done, none of us are perfect. All of us are guilty on one level or another. And we've all experienced in some level on the scale a sense of guilt or shame over things we've done. But the question that God is answering for us in this story is not not what do your friends or family think of you. He's not answering the question of what society thinks about you in this moment of greatest shame and failure. He's answering the question of what does God think about you in that moment? When you've been caught, when you've been exposed, when it's been found out, when when you failed, what does God think of you? And how does he respond? The very end of this chapter, Jesus says, To the woman who's caught in adultery, he says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. So this story is about not only how does God treat us in the midst of our greatest failure, but it's also an example of how these two tensions come together in Jesus Christ. What our culture would say are polar opposites and you can't bring these two things together, Jesus says, no, actually I can and I will. And I'm gonna bring together the reality of grace and truth. No condemnation, but go and sin no more. No, I don't condemn you. I love you. I receive you. I accept you just as you are. But friend, I don't want you to stay as you are. I wanna set you free. I wanna help you to walk in the freedom that you were designed for. Jesus is the perfect combination of grace and truth, of love and accountability, of compassion and justice, of acceptance and intolerance. Our culture does not think those two words can even be used in the same sentence. And he looks at this woman in the moment of her greatest failure and he goes, I accept you, I don't condemn you, I love you, but he does not tolerate the action. He doesn't say that she's not guilty of what she's been accused of. He just says, I forgive you. I don't condemn you. So let's read this passage together. The verses will be on the side screen and then we will unpack it for a few minutes. John 8 verse 1 to 11 says this, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman right here, she was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses, that's... The scripture, that's the Bible right here. The law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. It commands, it says to stone her, to kill her with rocks that we throw at her. That's what that means. Sorry, I lost my spot. Well, I really lost my spot. All right, verse five, here we go. Okay, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? 
Verse six, they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. He's clearly ignoring them, but they're demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, fine. You want to throw rocks at her until she's dead? Go for it. Just one condition before you throw any stones. Let the one who's never sinned throw the first one. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until Jesus, only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again And he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Friends, if you're taking notes today, the title of this message is Caught But Not Condemned. Caught But Not Condemned. And what we're going to see here as we unpack these verses is this reality, that whether we realize it or not, every single one of us, whether we've been exposed or not, whether our sins have been published on the five o'clock news or not, all of us are in the exact same position as that woman doesn't matter exactly which sin we have committed or in which way we've broken the law of God, but all of us, at the end of the day, we are quote unquote caught by God. He sees our hearts. He knows everything about us. None of us are perfect and none of us make it through this life with a perfect record. All of us need grace. We've all been caught, but because of Christ, we are not condemned. In the previous chapter, John chapter 7, there's a lot of confusion over who is Jesus. What is the identity of Jesus? Who is this man? Is he just a great teacher? Is he a prophet? Is he divine? Is he the Messiah? Is he insane? Is he possessed by a demon? People are arguing about who is this guy? What is he about? What's his message? They're trying to figure out who he is. The religious leaders are trying to have him arrested, but the people love his teachings. They're drawn to him. And now in John 8, he returns to the temple. It's during the Feast of Tabernacles. So the whole nation of Israel has gathered in Jerusalem um, to celebrate this festival. So there are thousands upon thousands of people there. And every time Jesus stands up to speak or speaks anywhere, the crowds, they come to him. And so John 8, verse 2, it says this, early the next morning, Jesus was back again at the temple. And all the people, all the people, this is so important, all of them came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Now, the reason this is a problem, a major problem for the Pharisees is because they realize, they recognize that they are losing the people. They're losing their influence with the crowds. Everyone's going to listen to Jesus. Everyone is following Jesus's interpretation of the law, of the Torah. Everyone is, not, is no longer listening to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. They're listening to Jesus. And so the Pharisees are trying to come up with ways to discredit this guy to try and prove to the people that he's not God. He's not who he claims to be. In fact, He's a deceiver. He's dangerous. 
stay away from him. Don't listen to him. So they, they've got to come up with strategies to, to break, if you will, this, this grip that Jesus has on the hearts of the people. And so they devise a plan. As all the people are gathered around in the temple to listen to Jesus, the Pharisees devise a scheme, they devise a plan. Here's what happens. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law, so these are also known as the scribes, uh, and the Pharisees, who are also teachers of the law, they brought a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. And so now they're setting the scene. They've decided, okay, the way this typically works is there was something called the Sanhedrin. It was the high court, the high council in Jerusalem. It was made up of 72 members of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, elected um, religious leaders. And it was like the Supreme Court where all the major court cases were held and were put on trial. So if somebody was breaking the law, that's the law of Moses. That's what's found in the first five books of the Old Testament. If someone's breaking the law in some very dramatic way, they go before the court to receive judgment. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're the ones who are entrusted with interpreting the law and declaring judgment, life or death, to the people who have broken the law. Now, imagine this. There's a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. She's brought before the court for judgment. And the Pharisees are thinking, perfect. This is it. We can use this woman and this situation to put Jesus, to trap Jesus, to put him in a really tight spot. And maybe we can prove to the people that he's really deceiving them. He's not who he claims to be, right? So, they bring this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. Teacher, they said to Jesus. Now, this is a very interesting title for them to give to Jesus. They're essentially calling him rabbi. They are, they are affirming the fact. In front of all the people, they're affirming the fact that Jesus is a teacher of the law. He's somebody who's sent from God, a good teacher, a good moral teacher probably, to help bring a fresh interpretation of the law of Moses. So they're acknowledging this. They're kind of playing their cards to the crowd, saying, yeah, hey, we think he's a pretty good teacher of the law too. But what they're doing is this. They're taking this private trial of this woman who's been caught in adultery, and they're now making it very public. They're bringing it to the temple in front of the crowds that are listening to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, you're a teacher of the law. You're one who knows the law. Um, how would you interpret this situation? Uh, what, would you, what would your judgment be on this woman? Okay? Uh, this woman, she was, she was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses, that's the Bible. If you're really from God, the law of Moses is really cut and dry on this one. It says to stone her. Capital punishment to kill her. What do you say? Now, they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. Friends, do you know how a good trap works? A couple years ago, 
my family and I, we, we went on vacation with some friends to the beach and at this, this place that we were staying, there were, these, there were these stone walls and these stairs nearby that you could walk to that led down to the ocean. And every afternoon at about three or four o'clock, these massive iguanas and lizards would crawl out on top of these, uh, these stones to just get warm, to sunbathe, you know. And my son, he, especially at that age, he didn't just, you know, like lizards. He loved them. He was obsessed. Like he caught every blue belly lizard in our neighborhood in a three mile radius. I mean, we had lizards everywhere, okay? We get to this, this vacation, this beach, and I mean, he walks around the corner. He sees these iguanas for the first time sitting out on top of the rocks, and he's like, Dad, I'm in heaven. I need you to catch one of those for me. I'm like, heck no, I'm not touching. Those things are massive. The size of my arm, right? Some of those things were huge. Now, he begged me the whole week, Dad, please catch, just catch a lizard for me. Now, they were fast. I, I put some gloves on, like, you know, cooking oven mitts or something. I don't remember. Tried to catch these things. Could never even come close. So I said, all right, I, I'm going to make a trap. Make a lizard trap. Here's what you need for a great trap, okay? The conditions have to be right. You got to entice that thing with the right, what it wants. And then a good trap is one in which the lizard can't get out. They're caught. They're stuck. They can't get out, okay? I'm not kidding you. My wife took a video of this. We have video evidence. This is one of the proudest moments of my life. And before you see this video, just know I was laying face down in this spot waiting for a lizard to arrive. We found out they loved popcorn of all things. I had a trail of popcorn leading to my trap. I probably laid there for 30 minutes. I'm sweating, I'm dehydrated, I'm committed for my son. Here's the video, check this out. I got that thing. I handed it to my son and it bit him on the arm. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we all had oven mitts on. Um, but a good trap, you gotta entice, and then it has to be able to be a cage of some sort of which they, the lizard, the person, whatever, can't get out of. And the Pharisees came and they said, okay, we're devising a trap for Jesus. And this woman is going to be the bait because we've been watching Jesus. And Jesus has this tendency throughout his whole ministry. Whenever somebody is exposed or downtrodden or brokenhearted or, or stuck or, or just hurting in some way, he, he rushes to them, he heals them. And he, then he says to them, I forgive you. He has this tendency to lean towards those who are hurting and he has a tendency to offer freely the forgiveness of God and compassion in those moments. In Isaiah 42 verse three, Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus and it says this, Isaiah prophesies of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. 
In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice unto victory. So Jesus is is walking around Galilee and Nazareth and Jerusalem and Judea, and there are tons of hurting people. There are tons of men and women like you and me that feel like bruised reeds on the edge of breaking. A reed was just a thin piece of grass that would grow in the, the, the banks of the Jordan River, and if a big storm came through or the winds came through, you would see them break in half or bending until they broke. But it's a fragile piece of grass. And then a smoldering wick is, is a wick that's is a candle that's already been blown out. And there's just a brief moment where there's a little flame inside that smolders, but it doesn't last very long. This prophecy is about a God, is about a savior that, lean toward, that leans towards those who are right on the edge right on the edge of giving up, right on the edge of breaking, right on the edge of feeling like, man, whatever life I have inside of me is about to be snuffed out. And Jesus goes, not on my watch. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. And the Pharisees know this. They know he's gonna be drawn with compassion towards this woman. But they said, here's how we've got him. We've got the bait. We've enticed him. We know what we can do to catch him, to trap him. We can get him to forgive and show compassion to this woman, but in so doing, he will be directly contradicting the law of Moses. He'll be directly contradicting the Bible. This will prove that he's not a teacher from God, that he's not God. If he contradicts God, he's a liar. And now we can arrest him. We can do all the things we want. And all the people who are gathered, hundreds, maybe thousands who are listening and watching, what will he do? How will he respond? How's he gonna get out of this one? He's stuck. He's trapped. The basket is closing in. There's no way out, it seems, for Jesus. And yet... Jesus is God, and he says what only God would think to say in this moment. Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Nobody knows what he was writing. Nobody knows. If anybody claims to tell you that they know what Jesus was writing in the dust with his finger, they don't know. Nobody knows. It seems like an arbitrary little fact just thrown in there. I don't, maybe he was writing down the sins of everybody in the room. He knew them all. He could read hearts and minds. Maybe he's making a big list. I don't know. But they kept demanding an answer. He was clearly ignoring them. He wasn't giving them the time of day and they were demanding, Jesus, what do you say? Tell us what to do. She's on trial. This trial just went public. You're in the seat of judgment over her. We're all looking to you. What will you tell us to do? Are you going to forgive her like you've done others? Or are you going to uphold the law of Moses, the scripture, the rules, and tell us to throw stones at her until she's dead? They're demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he says, all right, fine. Go for it. Stone her to death. Hold on, though, one condition. The one who has never sinned, throw the first stone. Then he stooped down and he wrote in the dust again. 
prudent. He didn't contradict the law of Moses. He didn't deny the Bible. He didn't do any of that. He just said, look, I'm not here. I'm not here to judge and condemn the world. I'm here to save it. So guess what? I'm not here to condemn her. I'm here to save her, to rescue her, right? And so he goes, here's what I'm gonna ask of you. Here's what I'm gonna demand in front of all the crowds, okay? Everyone that has a stone in their hand right now, all the accusers who are ready to kill this woman for breaking the law, I want you to take a good look at that stone in your hand. Feel the weight of it. Think about it. Think about that stone as it flies through the air towards that woman. I want you to just consider the stone. And then I want you to put that woman out of your mind for a minute, Jesus says. I don't want you to think about her or what she's done. Um, I want you to think about you for a second. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. So just forget about her sin. We all know what that is now. She's been publicly humiliated in front of all of us. Just let's not think about her for a minute before you throw that rock. I want you to take a little quick inventory of your life. Has anyone in here ever looked at their neighbor's wife with envy or lust in their heart? Has anybody in this room, in this space, Jesus says by saying that, have you ever been so angry at someone that you were on the edge of committing violence? You ever told a lie? You ever stolen something? You ever done something that you hoped and prayed would never be found out? Have you ever sinned before? And if you have, don't throw the rocks. But if after examining your own heart for a second and looking at that stone, you realize if people knew the real me, the parts that people can't see, I deserve a a rock just as much as she does. I'm no different than her. And one by one, what happened? When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until Jesus was left. Only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. I imagine you could hear a pin drop in this moment. The entire crowd who had seen this whole spectacle play out in front of them. This woman caught in adultery, brought publicly humiliated and shamed in front of everyone. Now it's just her and Jesus in the midst of the crowd. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Did not even one of them condemn you? Did no one throw a stone? And she responds, no, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Friends, Jesus knew something that day. For that woman who'd been caught 
There was something more dangerous than the stones that were gonna be thrown at her. There was something more deadly than the rocks in the hands of the accusers. Do you know what it was? It was shame. Something far more deadly than the stones. You see, Jesus knew, everyone knew that this woman who had been caught, her life was over. The ancient Mediterranean culture was a culture of honor and shame. If you did anything to bring public shame on your family in that context, your life was over. You were outcast, you were cut off, you were disowned by your family. Nobody would hire you for work. Your husband would put you away from him and the family. Pretty soon you'd be begging for bread at the city gates. Your life was already over. She was basically already dead. She just happened to be breathing. You see, the shame was more dangerous and deadly than the stones themselves because shame not only created, turned her into an outcast and, and, and ruined and ended her life in that moment, but shame also whispered in her ear, you're no good. You're worthless. Everyone knows who you really are now the mistakes that you've made. I mean, I can think of it like this, right? Have you ever been in a, in a car wreck where one of the vehicles, or maybe you've seen it or had a friend who's been in a situation like this where one of the vehicles is really damaged and the insurance claims and the adjusters and the the people that look at it, they, they say, man, this car, it's been damaged pretty bad. In fact, to repair the car would cost more than the car's worth. So we're declaring that car totaled. It's not even worth fixing. Send it to the junkyard and just leave it there to rust. Uh, you know, compact it, recycle it, get rid of it. It's good for nothing. That car's done. It's been totaled. That's how shame works. When you make a mistake, when you fail, when that failure is exposed and others begin to call it out, others begin to make judgments on you based on what they perceive to be true of you, however that is, shame whispers in your ear, it's over now, it's all over now. You're totaled, you're done, give up, go to the junkyard, quit on life. You're worthless, you're worth nothing. No one even wants to try to fix you, you're so far gone. And Jesus looks at her, what grace says, what mercy says, what the heart of God says to her in that moment is, you're not condemned. I'm not accusing you. You're not too far gone. You're, it's really broken right now. It's a really bad, yep, this is bad. It's not good. He doesn't justify the sin. He doesn't ever once say she's not guilty of that sin. He just says, I'm willing to work on it. I don't care how bad this wreck or this crash has been. I, I am willing to get into this situation and I don't care if it takes a lifetime. I will work on the heart of this woman. I will work on the life of this woman and I will bring her back to full restoration. Jesus goes to battle for us against shame and I'm, I'm closing with this so the keys, the keys can come out. thought about that, that prophecy in Isaiah where it says, 
bruised reed I will not break, and a smoldering wick I will not snuff out. And you'll notice when a candle, when it's burning, it feeds on the wax. The wick itself is, is just a little it's just a little container for the wax to burn. When the candle runs out of wax, the wick goes out completely. Um, but you'll notice this, if I blow this candle out, there will be just a second, just a few seconds, few seconds where there's still a little ember of flame inside, it's still a little glowing ember in the middle. Not very long. It's right at the very end of its life and, and you'll see it if you look close. For just a second, it glowed red and then it was gone. Second. And I imagine this woman, like many of us, is in that split second of time between when the flame is blown out, it's all been exposed, the wick is smoldering, it's about to die, it's about to go out, and right in that very moment, Jesus says, I'm not gonna snuff you out. I'm not going to, I'm not gonna douse the flame that's left. There's a little bit of life in there. I can see it. I know it. I do not condemn you. In fact, I wanna bring you back to life. And in so many ways, this is a picture of the gospel. Friends, how can Jesus say, neither do I condemn you? She was guilty. She had been caught in the act. The only reason Jesus could declare to her, I don't condemn you anymore is because he said, I'm gonna take the condemnation you deserve. I'm gonna take all the stones that could ever be thrown at this world from the accuser. I'm gonna take every, every lash of the whip, I'm gonna take the crown of thorns on my head. I'm gonna be publicly shamed and walked naked through the streets of Israel with the cross on my back in full view of everyone in full public humiliation. I'm gonna take your condemnation, your shame and your guilt and I'm gonna nail it with me and my body to the cross so that in this moment right now, I can see you and be near you in the dust of the earth and say, it's not over for you yet. I know the flame's been blown out and it's barely smoldering and you're hanging on by a thread. I know the winds are blowing and the reed has been bruised and it's about to go under the water. He says, I see you, I know exactly where you are and I don't condemn you because I'm the one at the end of the day who's gonna take all the, the rocks and the stones and the judgment that this world deserves so that I can extend grace upon grace, upon mercy, upon forgiveness never ending and so that you can have new life. Friends, don't miss this, and I'm closing with this, okay? Do you see what Jesus did here? The whole crowd was focused on the failure of this woman, which was a total setup and a total fraud, but that's a sermon for another day. They're all focused there, and Jesus goes, all right, yep, she's caught. She's definitely caught. But before you throw any stones at her, I just want you to take a moment to examine your own hearts. And by doing that, what Jesus does is so powerful. 
He removes her shame. He elevates her by bringing everybody in the crowd down to the same level. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. We're all on the same level. We all need the grace of God. Jesus says, I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Friends, for her, for us, I think sometimes one of our greatest fears in life would be being fully exposed, caught in the things that we don't want anyone to know about. And yet for this woman, it wasn't the end of her life, it was the beginning of her life. And do you know where that word dust is used in the Bible? Genesis 2. God kneeled down and he created man from the dust of the earth. I don't know what Jesus was writing in the dust, but I know this. I know that when he got down and he put his hands in the dust, I imagine in his heart, he was thinking of this woman and he was saying, you're one of my image bearers. Everybody in this room, even the accusers are image bearers of God. You're a part of my creation. And I am, the, I am God in the flesh. I am the representative of the heart of God. And when I formed you from the dust of the earth, you were designed to glorify God. You were designed to worship God. You were designed to live a life of freedom, not bound up in, in chains of shame and sexual sin and addiction and brokenness, but I made you to be free, to live free and to experience the joy and the grace and the peace that only I can give you. And I imagine as Jesus is kneeling down and he's just putting his hand on the dust of the earth, I imagine he's thinking in this moment, in his heart, in his mind, to the crowd, he's thinking, watch this. Just like in the beginning when I was there with the Father forming the very first humans from the dust of the earth, I'm about to make a new creation in this woman right here. I'm about to give her a new life. I don't condemn you. Go and live in freedom. Go and sin no more. Friends, we're gonna close by taking communion together. And my prayer for you today is that the weight of the glory and the grace of God would just rest on you. And as we take communion, I want you to remember the cross. I want you to remember the sacrifice that Christ took for you and as we take communion today, I've asked my friend Kenny to lead us in a simple song, Amazing Grace. So please stay seated, take communion quietly in your seats as Kenny leads us in this song. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.